This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we go to our study of God's word, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance and direction on our study this morning. Father, we're so thankful that we have your word, that your word is a guide to us in all that we think, all that we do, all that we say. And it is in a study of your word that God the Holy Spirit uses to mature us, to strengthen us, to advance us spiritually as we respond to the challenge of your word to walk in the paths of righteousness, to walk in your way, and to trust you with every detail of our life. Fathers, we continue our study in Proverbs today. We pray that you might continue to challenge us, help us to understand the uh, truths that are here in Proverbs, understand their application in our own lives, and that we may have the spiritual strength and courage to implement these principles on a day-to-day basis. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study this morning in uh, Acts chapter, I mean Proverbs chapter 2. Now, I put up here on the opening slide sort of a theme verse, I think, for the book of Proverbs. And that is that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end thereof is the way of death. And that is a particularly apt for the section we're in in chapter 2. Chapter 2, as we have studied, continues the lessons from the father to the son. The father is Solomon. Uh, We do not know who his son was, uh, that he was instructing in Proverbs. But as we know from Scripture, Solomon was the author of over 3,000 Proverbs, 300 of which are incorporated within the book of of, uh, Proverbs that we're studying. Now, the first nine chapters that we study here focus upon the basic importance of wisdom. Wisdom is the skillful application of God's word to our lives. It has to do with, with learning and developing the abilities, the familiarity with doctrine and becoming effective in how we use it on a day to day basis. And again and again, certain key words, certain key ideas crop up. As we go through the first chapter, there was an introduction setting forth some of the main ideas and using uh, about eight different words for wisdom. That gets unpacked a little more as we go through the first chapter. And then as we get into the second chapter, the focus becomes on, again, back to some of the main ideas uh, in the original instruction, and that is to focus upon God's word as the shield, the real protection, that which guards us and preserves the way of God's people. As we advance in this chapter, it focuses on two different arenas in which God's word protects us, especially those who are young. This is addressed, being addressed to Uh, to young people. And the issue that crops up as we move through the chapter and go to the end is really on the importance of choosing the right path in life, the right way. These words path and way and direction are words that are used metaphorically in Scripture to depict the course of life that we choose uh, to follow. And as Proverbs 14.12 points out, there is a way or a path that is very attractive, that seems right, that appeals to our 
uh, instinct, as it were. It's in, it seems like it's popular. This is the way the crowd, this is the way our peers think that they should go. This is the way that most people think will bring them happiness in life and joy in life and success in life. But the reality is that the end result of that course is really self-destruction. It's not death in Proverbs. We're not talking about death so much as eternal condemnation or life so much as eternal life, but experiencing a quality of life here on earth, whether we're going to have a death-like existence because we're following the path of human viewpoint, we're following the dictates and temptations of our sin nature, and therein it leads to a life of self-induced misery, a life of uh, self-destruction, and a life of unhappiness, or whether we're going to choose a path that not only brings a fullness of life during this life, a capacity for life, a capacity for happiness and joy that is not based on people or circumstances, uh, events, or any other uh, created thing, but is dependent upon that which never changes, which is the relationship with God, the eternal uh, God who is always faithful and uh, never changing. And so it presents a choice of life or death. And if we, I want to direct our attention just to the last couple of verses because this is where the entire chapter uh, heads. This is the lesson, uh, the, the final moral of the lesson. For the upright will dwell in the land, and the blameless will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the earth, and the unfaithful will be uprooted from it. There is a choice between life and death in every choice we make in life. Now, as I pointed out in these first nine chapters, there's an introduction to the book of Proverbs. A proverb is basically a short, pithy uh, maxim, a short, pithy saying that has boiled down a, a universally observed truth into two or three lines that, in a, in a very abbreviated manner, express this, this truth. For example, we have a, an English a proverb like father, like son. And often you see sons, and they resemble physically their father. But to the son who has grown up in the house under the influence of their father and their, their mother, they will often have a uh, sort of a uh, inclination, maybe it's passed on genetically, to imitate uh, their parents. Uh, and to imitate their father so that the proverb not only indicates at a surface level that a son may re physically resemble the father, but that in his character, in his life, in his attitudes, he often reflects uh, the parent. Often uh, you see this, and we, we joke about it by the fact that as we get older, we start seeing our parents show up in the mirror a little more frequently and we have the little saying, mirror, mirror on the wall, I am my father after all. <laughs> but we have this very short statement, like father, like son. It's compressed all of that into one very brief, succinct statement. Now, is that always true? No, it's not always true. But it is true for the most part. It is true most of the time, and uh, generally speaking, it is it is true enough that we recognize that there's a lot more truth there than, than we often think about. That's what a proverb is. It's, it's not a promise. It's not a law. It is a proverbial statement reflecting what is true in most cases, what is normative in life because of the way that God has created things. And so these are uh, wise sayings that have been uh, boiled down in a very uh, cr creative uh, poetic way to express these eternal, timeless truths of Scripture. The first nine chapters, though, don't really fit that pattern of Proverbs. The first verse started off the Proverbs of Solomon, uh, the son of David, the king of Israel. And then there's an introduction in the first seven verses, and then we get into this prologue to the book. If you skip, were to skip over to Proverbs 10.1, it has a second statement. These are the Proverbs of Solomon. 
Following that, in chapters 10 through the end of the book, they're not all of Solomon. There are some others that are brought in. But that's where you really see these one, two, or sometimes three-verse proverbs, these short, compressed uh, sayings that express biblical truth. But the proverbs, per se, don't really begin until chapter 10, verse 1. We have a prologue from chapter 1 through chapter 9 that emphasizes these ten lessons of the father to the son that extol the value and the virtue of wisdom, that we must, before we do anything else, the ground for understanding and applying all of the Proverbs is a desire, uh, a recognition, uh, a passion to make wisdom our ultimate goal in life, not the wisdom of the world, not the wisdom of the Greeks, which is intellectual and philosophical, but the wisdom which means to learn to skillfully and effectively apply the Word of God on a day-to-day basis. So we saw in the first lesson, in chapter 1, 8 through 19, a challenge to listen to the Father's guidance. The Father is passing on the wisdom that comes from the Word of God. So he stands in the place of God, as it were, giving the uh, Word of God, the revealed Word of God to his children, and to reject the influence of his peers. In that section from 1, 8 through 19, we see that the basic peer pressure that was as true then as it is today is for the son to follow the path of of, uh, least resistance and to go after easy money and easy love. And so the father warns him in those those verses to avoid that that temptation from the peer crowd that he can find uh, quick money, quick success, easy love, easy sex, and everything will be fine. And there's a, he warns him of that danger. Now, in the second chapter, he's coming back to that and expanding that a little bit. There was a section in between where he uh, personifies wisdom as calling to those who desire wisdom. Wisdom rebukes the simple. They're the pictured as the naive ones, the open-minded who will just take in anything because it sounds good versus the one who truly wants to know truth and to live in a way that honors God. So in the second lesson, beginning uh, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, there's an emphasis on the individual making a decision regarding uh, the priority of the Word of God in his life. The first four verses emphasize this through three conditional statements. If you receive my words, in verse 1, if you cry out for discernment, notice how there's an intensity increase here. In the first verse, it's simply receiving the words. In the third verse, it steps it up with the intensity. If you cry out for for discernment, lift and lift up your voice for understanding, and then it, it ratchets it up a little bit more. In the fourth verse, if you seek her, that is wisdom, as silver, and search for her as for hidden treasures. So the the initiation of this process is in our camp. It is in our court. It's our responsibility. We have to make a decision as to the significance and importance of God's word in our life. If we make that decision, if we seek, if we search, if we desire it more than uh, gold or silver, then God will uh, reveal himself to us. We will come to understand these things as a pro- as a result of our of our diligent uh, desire and search. We will come to understand the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God. And then he explains it a little more in the next uh, few verses of why this is important, because God is the one who dispenses wisdom. He is the source of wisdom. And as a result of gaining that wisdom and that knowledge of God, two things happen. That provides the, 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 the knowledge of God. God himself provides a protection for us. And the wisdom we learn also protects us. And so we have these words that show up in verses uh, 7 and 8 that as a result of first our uh, following the condition of, of seeking and searching for the truth of God's word, followed by his revealing himself to us, 
then he and what he has revealed become a shield to us. It guards and protects us, and it preserves us. That's the promise. So the first 11 verses state this, that first of all, the responsibility is ours to seek and to search. Secondly, as a result of that, God reveals to us his word, his knowledge, and that that increased relationship and that knowledge then provides protection for us, and he is a shield to us. Now, as we get into the rest of the chapter from verse 12 down through verse 23, we see that this preserves and protects us in two areas of deliverance, two areas of temptation, the temptation for easy money. And everyone, I think, has a desire to seek security and meaning and uh, value in life through uh, financial things, through the things that money can buy, through success in the workplace. All of this is wrapped up in this approach to uh, easy wealth. And secondly, through easy love, not just through the illicit love, through uh, adulterous affairs or illicit sex, but also just desiring uh, significance and meaning in wrong relationships. And this can cover a whole spectrum of different things, not just the extreme form of being involved with prostitutes or involved in an uh, adulterous affair. So these two verses, Proverbs 2.12 and Proverbs 2.16, express the arena in which we are protected by the word of God, to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things. That's the first course. This is the one who, as we'll see, makes a promise of easy success, easy money. Proverbs 2.16, then, to deliver you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. Easy love, easy sex. This is the message of our culture again and again and again. Actually, both messages are proclaimed to us uh, via the uh, media, via advertising campaigns, uh, whatever it is, we can get it through all manner of shortcuts without having to uh, without having to implement those puritanical uh, commands of the Word of God. So let's begin with the first area, and I just want to point out a few things by way of overview as we look at verses 12 through 15. Uh, this expresses uh, and defines the first arena of deliverance, to deliver you from the way of evil. Now, that's I believe, is a summary statement that is then expanded in the subsequent verses. The way of evil is a general statement. We're delivered in the way of evil from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the paths of unrighteousness. Now, one thing you should note as we go through this is the use of these different terms for the course or direction of life. Uh, you can circle them, join them together. It goes back to our opening verse that there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. We have the way of evil in the beginning of verse 12. We have the paths of uprightness in verse 13. We have the ways of darkness in verse 13b. We have um, the ways, uh, the crooked ways in verse 15 and those who are devious in their paths in verse 15b. So the focus here that's embedded in these words, way, path, course, all of these emphasize a course of life, a decision. Which path are we going to, uh, are we going to take? Now, as we begin to look at these verses, just to understand the significance of the vocabulary, so one of the, I think, fun things to go through in, in Proverbs and Psalms as well is to do the vocabulary studies, the word studies, because uh, words don't always mean the same thing due to context. Uh, a word that is used in a legal document usually has a very narrow, precise uh, meaning. 
But when you take that same word and you put it into a context of poetry, it often has a more fluid meaning. It often picks up or it's used in a figurative or metaphorical way. It's not quite as rigid because of the nature of of the literature that it's embedded in. So you have to look at these words and understand both the the literal meaning as well as the figurative usage and how it is applied in other ways in other uh in other uh, forms of uh another poetic uh, context. So the first word here is the word natsal which means to deliver. We see it at the beginning of verse 12 and again at the beginning of verse 16. This ties these two sections together. We have the first section of how God delivers and protects us in verses 12 through 15, the second from 16 uh, through 20, and then there's a conclusion in 21 to 22. Now, the word natsal has the idea of deliverance, rescue, saving someone from dire circumstances, snatching them away from danger, removing them from a, 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 a problem situation, liber, liberating them out of any situation where something is being held fast. Uh, usually, it has the idea of physical deliverance, but often it is used as a synonym for eternal salvation, a synonym for redemption. So it has a literal meaning, and it also has a meaning that's applied to salvation. And you have to look at the context to see uh, what the author is, is referencing. For example, in Psalm 1, and some of these are some great promises to uh, learn, to come to understand and, and memorize and claim at different times. Psalm 7-1, the psalmist says, O Lord my God, in you I put my trust. Save me from all those who persecute me. Now here's a use of the word save that is not related to eternal salvation. It's not even related to sanctification or the spiritual life. It's related to physical deliverance from one's enemies. So David says, save me from all those who persecute me and deliver me. It recognizes that we are often in situations in life where there are people who are either out to get us or we think they're out to get us, depending on how paranoid you might be. (laughs) But they are indeed perceived and may in fact be in a position of persecuting us. And so the deliverance spoken of here is protection when we come under the slanderous assaults of other people, and we go through those forms of people testing. It is God who delivers us. It doesn't necessarily mean that that person's going to go away or their assaults are going to go away, but it does mean God is going to protect and preserve us no matter what they do, and that God is going to see to it that those verbal assaults may not have uh, the impact we fear in our lives. Psalm 25.20 uses the word again where the psalmist prays, keep my soul and deliver me. Again, this has a more of a spiritual uh, context here as the focus is on the life, the soul, the life of the psalmist, and he's focusing on God's protection that whatever the arena of assault is, that God is the one, the only one who can provide ultimate deliverance. So he prays, let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. Deliverance is a result of trusting in God. This is an application of the faith rest drill, trusting in God and resting in his ability to solve the problem. Psalm 34.4 is a third example where the psalmist says, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Fear is one of the great trends of the sin nature that debilitates us spiritually. We're told in the New Testament that we are to be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That is not the idea of simple concern or simply thinking or sometimes we call it worrying about something as you may be uh, preparing for some event this week. Maybe you're going to uh, present a plan to someone at work. Maybe you're going to have some sort of report to deliver. 
maybe you're going to be traveling somewhere and you need to pack, and we tend to go over the details in our mind again and again in preparation. That's not the focus here. The focus here is on on um, really being worrying about something, putting, uh, trying to control it through our own anxiety or or worries and efforts. It's ratcheting up. It's beyond just simply thinking uh, a lot about something. So this is someone who is scared, who's afraid, who's worried, but God is the one who delivers us from those fears. Psalm 34, 17. Again, the righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of some of their troubles. Oh, wait a minute. No, it says all of their troubles, doesn't it? All of their troubles. God is the only source of deliverance. Now, that doesn't mean that we just fold our hands and, as some said in the past, let go and let God. There's a truth embedded in that statement. We do put things into God's hands and allow God to take care of things, but we have responsibilities as well, and we have to walk in obedience. That's our responsibility, and do what we can within our realm of responsibility, and then let God take care of the rest. Psalm 79.9 is one passage where Natsal is used in conjunction with what we normally think of as eternal salvation. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name and deliver us and provide atonement for our sins. And so here Natsal is used as a synonym for atonement or cleansing for sins, for God's name's sake. So when we look at this, in the context of uh, Proverbs 2.12, to deliver you from the way of evil is not looking at it in terms of eternal salvation, but looking at it in terms of practically rescuing us from the trap of temptation and consequent self-destruction if we follow the path of our sin nature and follow the path of the peers who are encouraging us to think in terms of human viewpoint, and live in terms of carnality. So we're to be delivered from the way of evil. This is the Hebrew word derech, which just has as a simple meaning a path, a road, uh, a highway even in modern, modern Hebrew, and it is a metaphor for the course of life. Here it's the evil way, because and evil is just the generic Hebrew word for evil. For that, it's a synonym for sin, that which is contrary to God's plan and purposes. So when we are uh, make God's word a highest priority in our life and he reveals himself to us through his word and we learn doctrine and we learn the procedures and protocols of scripture, then he protects us personally, directly, as well as through his word. And as a result of that, we are delivered from the temptations, the traps along the path of evil. And secondly, this is expanded to be the man who speaks perverse things. This is the person who is speaking distorted truth. It's the Hebrew word uh, tapukot, and it means someone basically that has reversed the natural or the created order from the way God designed it. It's used figuratively of a prostitute in the scriptures. It's used of uh, the spiritual unfaithfulness of Israel as Israel uh, yielded to idolatry and departed from the truth of God's word. So perverse things relates to any and all truth that has been distorted, that has been turned upside down, uh, we can think of several ways like that today where as the principle of marriage is being uh, perverted and distorted so that it includes uh, homosexual marriage. Well, homosexual marriage is not marriage, but people are redefining the term marriage not on the basis of two members of the opposite sex who are joined together before God in order to uh, accomplish his will in their life and produce a family and provide for and educate the next generation, which is how marriage has been understood uh, from the creation. But now marriage is being redefined as simply having an intense romantic attraction. And if you just have an intense romantic attraction to a member of the opposite sex or to any any person, rather, 
uh, or numbers of people? Why are we to stop with just having a monogamous relationship with a member of the opposite sex? Let's have uh, three or four. What about the age difference? So once you start changing the definition of marriage, you change everything. You're turning things upside down. That is what is meant by uh, perversity. So this delivers us. The Word of God delivers us from the trap of the temptation of this path. From Then verse 13 goes on to explain this. is from those who leave the paths of uprightness. First they are distorting the values and reversing them. Then they are departing or abandoning the path of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. Darkness is always a used figuratively in Scripture as the course of carnality or sin. The pay attention to the words path and ways, and uh, that there is a contrast uh, here, or it's describing these two different terms of path of paths of uprightness and ways of darkness. The leaving of the path is the, the words of the box on the left side, azov, which has to do with abandoning something, forsaking it completely, going completely off course, not just a little bit, but completely, completely rejecting and abandoning the path or the way of uprightness or righteousness. Notice if you look back just to the... Uh, First chapter in chapter one verse three says that part of the reason that the son is is challenged to to learn the proverbs is to receive the instruction of wisdom and justice. This is a tzedek. This has to do with righteousness. So here the the um, the peers are enticing us to leave the paths of righteousness and then to walk in the ways of of darkness. Um, and then, then we have the word uh, yosher here. This is the word, excuse me, I used a different word for uprightness. This is yosher. It has to do with the level way, the order, the way of equity. This is, uh, go back, I misspoke when I was on verse 3. It's the last word. I mentioned justice, but it's the word equity. These are synonymous concepts. Equity is one of those words today that doesn't have uh, a, a clarity. It really has the idea of integrity and justice, a synonym for setic, that, that it's based on setic and based on an absolute understanding of righteousness. So they are departing the path of integrity or the course of honesty and justice in order to uh, walk in the ways of darkness. The way of integrity is emphasized both in Proverbs 1, 3, and then it was emphasized earlier as a result of God revealing himself to us in chapter 2, verse 9, then as a result of diligently pursuing and seeking wisdom and and God, then we will understand righteousness, that is righteousness and justice and equity, as it's translated in the New King James, which is this idea really more of integrity, honesty, and true fairness. Only God can can provide that understanding. I don't really like the word fair because it means so many different things to many different people, but the uh, Hebrew concept always goes back to an eternal absolute grounded in God's God's character. So they are de- uh, enticing us to leave the paths of, of integrity, to walk in the course or the road or the path of darkness, that is sin. Now we'll see these two words uh, Oric for uh, path and Derek for the way. That's how they're usually translated. And we'll see them show up two or three more times as we go through this section in Proverbs. The enticing one here is also further expanded in verse 13 in terms of his internal uh, attitude or his internal mindset, his values, not just external actions, but his internal mindset. He rejoices in doing evil and delights in the perversity of the wicked. The uh, word for rejoice and its synonym uh, indicate having great joy over something, great enthusiasm over something. The first word is the Hebrew word sameach, which is a word that you uh, might hear today in Jewish context. 
because today is uh, Purim. Purim began last night at sundown. Purim is the annual feast that it's not a biblical feast, but it was uh, added later to celebrate God's provision and deliverance of the Jewish people uh, at the time of Esther, the story in Esther of how um, uh, evil uh, sort of deputy prime minister of the land, uh, Haman, is out to get uh, Ahasuerus the king to destroy uh, the Jewish people. And so finally his plot is exposed due to God's blessing and uh, of, of Esther and giving her a hearing before the king. And as a result of that, the Jewish people were protected. So this is a great holiday. And it is often one that today is used in connection with the remembrance of the Holocaust. Some of you may have noticed that on uh, one of the cable channels last night, they showed uh, the uncut version of Schindler's List. That is why there's this connection. So often when when there is a, 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 a holiday, a Jewish holiday, they will say Hag Sameach, which is a general statement of just have a happy holiday. So that's where you would hear the word Sameach today, is to have joy or rejoice today uh, because today is a special day. So that's the idea. It's a, it's a time or attitude of, of uh, rejoicing and having, having great enthusiasm and joy over something and having a party. So they are rejoicing and celebrating evil. This, again, is the same word for evil that ties us back to uh, connects us back to verse 12, that that the word of God will deliver us from the way of evil, and the way of evil is rejoiced in by those who are antagonistic to God and think they have their own path uh, to life. The parallel is, is in the second line is to delight. Uh, Gul has the same uh, basic meaning to be joyful, to be happy, and to express that joy. So the uh, enemies, the ones who are the peers of the sun, are those who really rejoice in mentally. They, they just value evil. Today we have many people, more and more people in this country who are that way, who value that which is wrong. They rejoice over it, and they hate Christians. Christians may not uh, say anything negative to them at all, but just because you as a Christian believe there are moral absolutes and they are uh, rejecting all moral absolutes, they hate you violently just because of what you believe, just because they know you believe something. And uh, this irritates them to no end and will bring about the most horrific reaction on their part when they find out that you are a Christian. And in today's world, there is less and less resistance to that kind of a thing. Uh, you can say You can't say anything negative about many different groups in the United States, but you can just about accuse Christians of anything and insult them in any way, and it goes without, uh, without any kind of rebuttal. They rejoice in doing evil. They delight in the perversity of the wicked. This is another form of the same word we saw back in verse 12, the man who speaks perverse things. He not only speaks perverse things, but he delights in perversity, in turning things on their end, uh, uh, upending things, uh, reversing uh, morals and reversing values. And this is uh, the the man who uh, rejoices or speaks perverse things is always there to tempt the believer away from the path of righteousness. And his ways are crooked. And they are devious in their paths. Now, the second line is the one that's uh, insightful there. It's the Hebrew word ikesh, which has the idea of something crooked or perverted, the, the twisting of something that was once straight. And so it's the idea of taking something that was true and was accurate to begin with and then beginning to distort it and warp it over time through the use of uh, vocabulary, changing the meaning of terms, uh, things of that nature. They're devious in their paths. It's the same word we saw in verse verse 13, dealing with the paths of uprightness. But here it's used in the, um, the negative. They are devious in their in their paths, and these devious 
and crooked paths lead to destruction in other Proverbs, Proverbs 4.12. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered, and when you run, you will not stumble. That word for stumbling there is this idea you will not be brought down or because of a crooked path or because of something that's not level in the path. Uh, Proverbs 22.5, thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. He who guards his soul will be far from them. And so the way there of the perverse, that's the crooked path. Uh, then we get to the second area in which we're protected in this passage from, uh, from evil is not just protection from uh, peers who seek to entice us into the wrong path, but also from the immoral, immoral woman. And this would stand for all manner of immorality as well, all manner of sexual uh, immorality and sexual sins, not just the area of fornication, but adultery. But this is being uh, depicted primarily as the adulterous uh, woman who is married, but she leaves the uh, covenant of God. She forgets her marriage vows and treats her husband uh, with no respect and enters into uh, illicit affairs. So not only are we delivered first from the way of evil, if we are applying God's word, but second from the path of the immoral woman, the seductress who flatters with her words. Notice she's further described as the one who forsakes the companion of her youth. She has been married, and she rejects him, and she rejects the covenant or abandons the uh, companion of her youth and then forgets the covenant of her God. And then the explanation of the danger of this is given in verse uh, 18, verses 18 and 19. For her house, and that the house there is used metaphorically to refer to all of the uh, immoral activities that take there, take place there for her house leads down to death. This is not eternal condemnation. This is self-destruction in life. And her paths, that is following her course of life, her paths lead to the dead. And the picture, the word there is extremely picturesque. It's picturing the sort of a mass graveyard where all the corpses are gathered together. None who go to her return is the warning of verse 19, nor do they regain the paths of life. Now, does that mean that, oh, if you go to, have gone down the path of, of adultery or immoral sexual relationship that you can't get back on track? No, it doesn't. What it is warning is that there is such a seduction there, uh, there is such an enticement there that it is very rare for someone who once gets involved in immoral sexual uh, lifestyle for them to turn back and to recover from that. It is not easily done. So we are to stand firm and we are protected and guarded only by the word of God. And then the result in verse 20, so we may walk in the way of goodness and keep to the paths of tzedakah, of righteousness. So let's just break it down a little bit. Again, it starts the same way that verse 12 started, to deliver, to deliver from a particular danger, to deliver from a trap or enticement, to deliver from the immoral woman. And the first word for immoral woman simply refers to an adulterous woman. The difference between adultery and immorality is in adultery, one or more of the parties are married. In immorality, they are not married, uh, but they are not, uh, but they're engaged in a uh, prohibited uh, sexual relationship. So to deliver from the immoral woman, from the seductress, who flatters with her words. Now, this is another interesting term that is used, um, applied metaphorically to the seductress. It has to do with the fact that she is verbally enticing, verbally promising something that she can't deliver on. She is using smooth and deceptive speech. The Hebrew word is halach, and it refers to uh, that literally to that which is smooth or slippery and came to be used uh, quite a bit to refer to uh, language that was smooth, that was deceptive, that was flattery. Now, in, in English, our concept of flattery is simply one of telling someone nice things that may not be true. But the Hebrew concept of flattery here is that it is intentionally deceptive. 
So it's not just telling someone nice things to make them feel good for a good reason, but it is always negative with a desire to express something uh, uh, deceptive. Some of the verses where this is used in the psalm, Psalm 5.9, talks about there's no, flat, no faithfulness in their mouth, their inward part is destruction, their throat is an open tomb, again, the imagery of leading to death, and they flatter with their tongue. That's the same word. Psalm 36.2, for he flatters himself in his own eyes, so it's self-deception, when he finds out his iniquity and when he hates and verse 21, it's hard to see it, but it's really imbe- the idea is there. Uh, it was translated, uh, the words of his mouth were smoother than butter. It's a difficult uh, way to translate that and bring it over into English. But the first part of that is a really a verb relating to the flatterer. And uh, one way you could translate it with the, 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 the mouth of the flatterer is smoother than butter. And so it refers to this self-deception, this destructive deception of the uh, seductress, that she is enticing with words and promises that uh, she cannot deliver on. Psalm 2.17, who forsakes the companion of her youth. She's married. She's been married for some time, but she no longer uh, is faithful to her husband and she has abandoned him. This is the same word that we had back earlier in verse 13. So the writer, as he's crafting these proverbs, is connecting these verses back and forth uh, through the use of the same words. Uh, just as verse 13 talked about the uh, the, the evil uh, companions who uh, abandoned the paths of uprightness, so the uh, adulterous woman has abandoned the companion of her youth and she has forgotten the covenant of her God because marriage is not, uh, is, is basically a covenant, a promise, an oath given before God of loyalty and faithfulness between husband and wife. It is a legal contract that is entered into for life between the husband and the wife. Proverbs 2.18 gives the results. For her house leads down to death and her paths to the dead, to the place of the corpses. It's not talking about eternal condemnation again. It's talking about the place where there is a, a self-destruction in life. There's, there's no hope there. There's no life there. There's no value there. It just has this empty promise that by entering into an affair or relationship with her, that somehow there will be meaning and value and significance in life. But the end thereof is always something that is empty and something that is self-destructive. Psalm uh, Proverbs 2.19, None who go to her return, nor do they regain the paths of life. If they give themselves over to that lifestyle, then it's the end result is self-destructive and under normal conditions, there's no recovery. Results, verse 20, so you may, the result is from the deliverance that we may walk in the way of goodness and keep to the paths of righteousness. Again, we have the same two Hebrew words that we've been seeing through this, these verses. Uh, Derek and Orach representing two, the different courses of life. Sometimes it's a negative course, sometimes it's a biblical course. But the purpose of deliverance is so that we may walk in the way of goodness, the way of the Lord, and this is described as the paths of righteousness. And then the end statement, the summary is, for the upright will dwell in the land. Now remember, this is written for Jews who were living in the uh, at this time, still the United Kingdom, living in the land God had promised them. And living in that land and dwelling in that land was the land of promise and the land of blessing where God promised them rich, uh, abundant life. So the application is that those who are upright will dwell in the land. Remember, under the Mosaic Law, if you were guilty of any sort of sexual crime or sexual illicit sexual activity, adultery, or, or immorality or homosexuality, the, de- the, the penalty was a death penalty. So if you engage in these activities, you literally risk your life, and the result can be uh, an execution or physical death. 
but the upright, the one who follows the commands of God, will dwell in the land, and the blameless, that is those who do not succumb to the temptations and traps along the, uh, the, along the path by being on the right path, will remain in it, that is, in the land. But in contrast, the wicked, those who yield to the temptation and the traps along the way, will be cut off from the earth, is how it's translated, but I would translate it as land because the context, again, is talking about the the land of Israel in its original concept. Uh, So the idea is that they would be cut off from the land, the land of blessing, the land of promise of God, and the unfaithful would be uprooted from it. So there are consequences in time for our sinful decisions and our failures to walk according to the path that God lays out before us. Now, the Scripture teaches that before we can walk a path that brings blessing from God, we have to be in right relationship with Him. And that only comes through salvation. It only comes by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If we have never trusted in Christ as Savior, then we're spiritually dead, the Bible says, and the course of our life is the course of death. There's no other option uh, left to us except the option of believing and trusting in Jesus Christ. And once we have done that, then God the Holy Spirit works in our life, takes the Word of God, helps us to understand it, and it truly does become that protection for us and that shield for us as we go through the course of life to protect us from all of the traps, from the devil's world, the cosmic system, and from our own sin nature. But the only course of real life is that what Jesus offered, which is life eternal, which comes only by trusting in his name, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this morning and to remind us that the choice before us is always a choice between life and death. This was the same choice that Moses gave the Israelites uh, before they went into the, the land of promise, was to choose this day life or death. And they were to choose the path of life, which was the path of obedience to you, the path of uh, studying, learning, internalizing your word, and making it the, uh, uh, the bedrock upon which their life was based. And that is a choice before us. It begins with our choice of salvation. Are we going to trust in your provision of a Savior through Jesus Christ and him alone for eternal salvation? Or are we going to try to uh, save ourselves through our own works and through our own deeds? And Scripture says there's a way that seems right to man in almost every religion on earth, except for Christianity, uh, sets forth a hope in human good, human works. But only Christianity sets forth the fact that, as Jesus said, there is only one way to heaven. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. And so the choice today may be for you to trust in Jesus Christ. This is your opportunity to uh, trust in him, to believe that he died on the cross for your sins, and therefore secure your eternal destiny. And at the instant you believe in Christ, you enter into a new family, You become adopted into the royal family of God, and at that instant, you have this new life. The issue before you is not maybe how you're going to live that life now that you're a believer and how you're going to, uh, what role the Word of God is going to play in your life. And for you who face these decisions, we pray that God would give you great insight and desire that you might know Him. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the things that we have studied today and the things we've studied in your word, that we might take these things and apply them to every area of our life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.